Do you think you can get such a job without a degree if you're completely self-taught? How did you prepare for your job interviewer? How did you get noticed? And how would you recommend people get found by these companies and actually find a job there? There are two distinct phases to being able to get that job at big tech. Welcome to the Coding in Flow podcast. My name is Florian Walter and in this show I interview interesting people from the programming industry to learn from them about software engineering, career development and life in general. In this episode I will be talking to Rahul Pandey who is an Android engineer at Facebook and we will answer pretty much all questions you had about how to get into such a big tech company. Like if you need a computer science degree to get in or if it's enough if you are self-taught like me what kind of projects you should build for your portfolio to raise your chances to get noticed by a recruiter, what questions they will ask you at the job interview, how much you can earn at such a big tech company and if the work quality is really as good as people imagine. So this episode is really packed with information. It's super interesting. I hope you enjoy it. But do me one favor. Share this episode with at least one other programmer that could benefit from it because it's really a win-win situation. You help this channel and this podcast grow and you do your friend a favor so your friend will be thankful to you. So please go ahead and share this and then I wish you a lot of fun with this episode. Before we begin, I would like to thank the sponsor for this episode, which is the stream chat SDK. With Stream, you can build a fully-fledged chat app with features like group chats, attachments, reactions and offline support in very little time. If you've ever tried to build a chat like this from scratch before, you know that this is actually really difficult and error-prone. Stream makes it easy because they provide all the complicated low-level code. Everything works right out of the box, but at the same time you can customize it at any level you want. It's completely free if you're making less than $10,000 in monthly revenue and have less than 5 team members. You can use it on Android with Kotlin or Java, XML or Jetpack Compose, and it also supports many other languages and platforms. If you're planning to add a chat to your app, do yourself a favor and give Stream a try. To find out more, click the link in the description or visit getstream.io slash codinginflow. And now back to today's interview. Okay, so first of all, I want to congratulate you to uh, 20,000 subscribers on YouTube, which you reached recently. And of course, I will put a link to your YouTube channel into the show notes so people can take a look at later. And first of all, since you work at Facebook, I was wondering, how can I hack my girlfriend's Facebook account? <laughs> I get that no, question I'm just a lot. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Jokes on me, I don't even have a girlfriend, but many people wonder about this. No, but since you work at Facebook, I was wondering what does a day for you at Facebook typically look like? What, as much as you're comfortable with talking about this, what are your tasks? What is your job role? And yeah, what do you basically do all day? Yeah, so I think that Facebook and these other big companies are, are inherent, like by definition, they're big, right? And so depending on what part of the company you are, what part of the stack you work on, your day will look quite different. But I can share, you know, an example day on my end as one data point. Um, and I think I also I'll mention that I guess I'm a little bit unique in the sense that I have this job, but I also do a lot of stuff on the side, like like YouTube and, and teaching. Um, 
But for me, I think a normal day, so the team that I work on is about empowering other developers in the company to be able to build faster and build better, higher quality products. So it's basically a developer infrastructure role, which is a little bit different or quite different from a product developer role. Um, and so in any given day, I'll typically have at least one or two meetings where I talk to product teams about what are the needs that they have, what are the concerns they have with using the infrastructure that my team develops, and how can I help them or unblock them, um, either immediately in like tactical value or maybe in terms of road mapping. Like a lot of the time is spent in how can we set up our team and their team for success in the next six months or nine months or whatever. Um, and then, of course, as a software engineer, a lot of the time it's also going to be spent coding. And maybe not coding, but I would say more accurately reading code or debugging. So it's not necessarily always writing code, but a lot of it will be spent in, um, you know, there's a bug you're chasing down. And oftentimes you're going to be reading tons and tons of code. And the actual code change you make will end up being a couple lines, uh, which solves the problem. But to get there, you have to read thousands of lines of code, right? Um, that's a pretty common occurrence, I think, at a big tech company. Um, and so, yeah, I would say like, Team meetings, a lot of time spent debugging, reading, or writing code. And then, of course, there's also a lot of um, like one-on-ones with people on the team where you talk about, you know, what are they working on? How can you help? Career growth, things like that. The name of your role you have there is lead developer, right? That's how it's called. Technically, I, I if you look at the actual, like, um, employment system i don't think there is a name attached to the role but if you look at the level um i guess you could call it a staff engineer so if you look at the equivalent level at other companies it would be called a staff engineer okay i think this was actually the word i read earlier not lead developer staff engineer yeah this was something i was going to ask later how much time you actually uh, spend in meetings and how much time you actually spend writing code but you already explained this um, then we can also, then I can also add another question to this. How many hours would you say do you work per week overall? Yeah, I feel like it depends quite a bit. Um, I think one of the good things about this big tech company is that, you know, it's not going to come crashing down. Uh, like there's some amount of stability. You, you, I have a pretty high degree of confidence that my role or the company will still be around. And so there are some weeks where I, I'm actually quite busy and there's a deadline coming up, especially like, for example, holiday time. Um, November, December are the biggest months for these ad-driven companies. And so you need to make sure that everything is landed and stable by October or early November. Yeah, I think it depends on when we're talking about. Like one of the things about these big companies is that it is very bursty in the sense that you might have uh, a SEV. A SEV is what we call internally like a, a big issue with the site or the mobile app, like something is crashing for a large number of people. And of course, if you have a SEV going on, then you have to jump on it no matter what time of day it is. Um, and also if you are preparing for the holiday season code freeze, like November and December are the critical months for these ad driven companies. And so the months of September, October are quite busy, but there are also times when things are a little bit lighter. And um, I would say like, you know, on a, on a good week where there's not as much in terms of commitments and maybe it's like, 40, 45 hours, but on a busy week, it could easily turn into 50, 60 hours a week. Hmm. Yeah, this reminds me of something Don mentioned in the podcast episode we, I had with him. He's a freelancer 
full-time and he mentioned that he from time to time i think about once every three months on average he has something that he refers to as a hell week yeah so this happens usually around um when i think when your versions are shipped and stuff like that so when when there is more work to be done then it can become really a there can be a lot to do and then sometimes he has these really uh, bad weeks that are full of work where he has to work for many hours and can't focus so much on his social life but those are usually just short phases and then he has phases where the work is more relaxed where he has more work-life balance so from what you say it sounds like there are these phases in uh, in your work as well where you have weeks where there is more to do and then uh, weeks or months where there is a bit more relaxed where it's a bit more relaxed i think that's exactly right and i think there's one other layer in a tech company which probably doesn't exist in the freelance world which is on call so pretty much everyone uh at facebook if you're an engineer or pretty much any tech company there's some sort of on call cadence where you know if you're on a team of five or six people every five or six weeks you're going to be on call and then of course i think during that on call week the idea is that you are essentially the first line of defense for any kind of question or issue that comes up. And so you have to prepare to be a little bit more busy during that week. So I think that's some, probably something that only happens in a in a medium or large tech company compared to, you know, in freelancing, you probably don't have that. Yeah, would you say that working at a big tech company is as good as people imagine? Or would you say it's I mean, of course, you can't, maybe on video, you don't want to say that uh, your, <laughs> your job is not perfect. But do you think it's as good as people imagine or do they have some too uh, loftier hopes for how uh, working at such a big tech company actually is? It's an interesting question. I feel like there are a ton of benefits to working at these big tech companies. Um, I think a lot of people value getting into Microsoft, Google, um, Apple, these big companies, because I think, first of all, they pay well, and it's pretty well known. You can look up online what kind of compensation band they have, and that's certainly true. Um, there's also stability. And also, I think a big part of it is career growth. So that if you look at like an entry-level developer role, you're already making a lot more than what most people who are consulting or freelancing will make. And then the appealing thing about it is that if you are able to climb up the ladder, then the compensation increase isn't linear. It actually goes up kind of geometrically or exponentially. And so if you're like a very, very senior engineer, you're making not like 3x more than a junior engineer, you're making 5x or 7x, like a, a, quite a bit more. So I think that's one part of it, which, um, it's certainly pretty unique or amazing about these big companies. And the final thing I'll mention is that I think the other benefit of working at one of these companies is that it opens up opportunity. And that is something that's hard to put a price tag on, uh, but you kind of feel empowered. It's like, okay, I, I got this job and now a lot of companies, there's a lot of inbound interest in my profile. And I just feel like I can go out and I can either do my own startup or I can get that other job that I really want, it gives you confidence. And I think that confidence is something that um, a lot of people overlook, but it's actually very, very valuable in a, in a career. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned that 
the income grows more exponentially and not so much linearly when you climb up the career ladder, which must be really nice because this is one of the downsides of jobs usually when it when you compare it to something like entrepreneurship that you uh, can't really get big raises at the time. You usually have this small incremental growth over the years, which is a reason often why people dream of becoming self or becoming an entrepreneur, because then you have this potential of this exponential growth where you really make a lot of money after a few years. But when it's, if it's like you say that you uh, really can can get a raise of i mean you don't get a raise of 10x at once do you but the the growth is more exponential in comparison to other jobs yeah yeah that's right i mean, i think that the um like the other thing that sometimes people don't realize with these tech companies at least in california which is where i am and especially like in the us a lot of the compensation will come in the form of equity and that's something that is also relatively unique if you're coming from a freelance or consulting world which is that um, especially as you become more senior, the majority of your compensation is going to come from the equity component. And given how well the tech industry has done broadly over the past five or 10 years, that equity component becomes much larger than your base salary. And that's really where you see this pretty huge gain. So equity means that you get a, a small piece of the company, basically. So you get stocks, right? Or yeah. So that's called. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. So basically, they're called restricted stock units or RSUs. And the idea is that um, you'll be given a certain number of them. So like a certain number of Google stock, for example, or a certain number of Facebook stock. And at smaller companies, because the company is illiquid, it's not publicly traded yet, you might get an actual percentage, you get options so that if the company does get an exit or goes IPO, eventually, then you'll, you're able to turn those options into stock, which will have a ton of value, um, given that outcome. Yeah, that sounds really appealing. Of course, many people are really interested in getting into such a big tech company. So maybe let's talk a little bit about how did you get in there? Do you think, or is it possible to get into a big tech company? And with big tech, I mean companies like Google, Facebook, um, Amazon, these typical FANG companies. Thanks stands for Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, right? Mm -hmm. So do you do you think you can get such a job without a degree if you're completely self-taught? And maybe you can talk a little bit about how would how did you prepare for your job interview? How did you get noticed? And yeah, then we can touch on uh, on the details a little bit more. But yeah, how did you get into it and how would you recommend people get found by these companies and actually find a job there yeah so i think that i get this question a lot and i think um there are two distinct phases to being able to get that job at big tech and also by the way i think fang is a very interesting term i think that people are really they really want to get a fang job but i think the reality of the situation is that there's a ton of really great companies that are not part of the acronym like for example i mean just off the top of my head airbnb Robinhood, Pinterest, like these are amazing companies to work Uber. at. Uber, yeah. I mean, these are all great companies that have done engineering on the engineering side. They're really smart people who work there and they're solving tough problems, um, but they're not captured in FANG. So I think that if if we expand the definition a little bit, I think people can be happier and um, they don't need to be so like 
focused on just those, you know, four or five companies in Fang. Yeah, it makes sense. But I think the process is, I think, similar no matter uh, which company you want to go for. There are two distinct phases. Number one is, are you getting the interview? And then if you're not, then I'll talk about like some of the uh, tactics I have to help you get the interview. And then once you get the interview, the preparation you do pivots or changes completely almost. So um, if you're not even getting the interview, like if you're self-taught, for example, and you don't have the infrastructure or the network of people around you to be able to you know, get in touch with the recruiter, for example, then I think the burden is on you to demonstrate your capability as an engineer. And I think you've talked about this in a couple of your videos, Florian, but I, I think largely it just comes down to, have you published an app on your own? Or is there some demonstration of your work through a client or through some contract that you can say, hey, I built this and you can check out the quality and therefore you can see you know, my competency as an Android developer or as iOS developer, whatever it might be. Um, so like building out personal projects or side projects is critical to being able to, being able to demonstrate uh, that you're able to, that the company should take a bet on you and interview you. I think in my case, it was a little bit different because I had the luxury of this whole network and infrastructure, right? I went to Stanford, which is in the middle of Silicon Valley. And so literally every month or every you know couple months, there would be a career fair where a bunch of companies would come in and they would try and recruit students. And so for me, it was very easy to walk in and basically hand my resume out to people. And I had a pretty good, uh, idea of being able to at least get the interview and so that's the first stage like is the company interested enough in you to offer you the interview um and the second part of it is getting the job once you're getting the interview and i think for that um that's where we have to start talking about dsa or data structures and algorithms so largely at these companies the majority of them are going to be asking you questions about um, data structures and algorithms, things like binary search trees, linked lists, queues, stacks, and manipulating them. A lot of these are whiteboarding questions. And I think there's a lot of people who, um, a lot of discussion has been had around, is that the best way to actually assess people um, to be a software engineer at these companies? Because the reality is like, as an engineer at Facebook, I very, very rarely, if at all, um, use any of the skills to prepare for the DSA portion of the interview. But the reality is that today, at least, that's how many of these companies operate. And so you just have to kind of spend a month, two months, three months grinding out a lot of these questions. Um, and there's really only like 15 or 20 patterns that you have to recognize. And once you recognize those patterns, then a lot of the DSA questions become quite a bit easier. And then once you clear those, you can get the offer, hopefully. Yeah, in my interview with Frank K recently, uh, he uh explained it to me like this, if I understood him correctly, that these data structures and algorithms concepts play a bigger role in uh, companies where they have large apps, because the, the larger the app, the more these little optimizations play a role and the more important they are. If you have a small app, then you can get away with doing things inefficiently. But if you have an app like Google search itself, then you really have to optimize it a lot. So this seems to be a, a one reason why uh, data structures and algorithms are so important in these interviews with these large companies, if I understood them correctly. Do you think that's that's correct? Mm, I, I have a little bit of a different take. I think that, um, I think if you're a product developer at Microsoft or Google or Facebook, um, speaking from personal experience, 
if you're just building out a new widget or if you're constructing a new part of the application, the chance that you actually think about a lot of the underlying mechanisms of performance and data structures of how your app is working is very little. Like very few people actually think about that on the job. Usually what will happen is that there'll be a team or there'll be someone who like kind of architected the whole thing. And maybe that person thinks about the runtime complexity and what algorithms to use. But the vast majority of engineers don't actually think about that on a regular basis. So I do think that there is a disconnect where when you're trying to get into these companies, you are being asked all these questions, but the actual application of that on the job is almost none. But I do think there is value because when you're given these questions, you um, it's not just the algorithm that's being tested. I think a lot of it is also like- Your logic of thinking, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Like your communication. So, hey, explain what you did. And I think a, lo a okay. large part of how you succeed in a tech company is the collaboration with other people. When you get stuck, how do you ask for help? Are you able to have a conversation with the interviewer to figure out something together, right? So it goes a little bit beyond the actual DSA and it goes into kind of teamwork and problem solving. Yeah, it just makes sense. So if I understood it correctly, then uh, people can get in without a computer science degree. Yeah, it's definitely possible. And in fact, it happens quite a bit. Okay. And then they usually have to apply them, apply to these companies themselves or do they have to get found? I think that um, for these big tech companies, there's so much inbound. So if you just apply, there's a very good chance that you'll never hear back from the company. So almost always, um, what I recommend to people is either a referral. So if you know someone who <clears throat> knows you and trusts you and like, thinks you're doing good work. If they work at one of these companies, a referral is a huge leg up in the in, in being able to get a call back. And the other thing is what we talked about earlier, which is if you have a published Android app, for example, and it has a meaningful number of people who are using it, that's also really impressive. So that can be a way to stand out. Okay, so the app should actually be published or is it enough if it just is on GitHub? I think ideally it's published because basically what you want is you want it to be as easy as possible for the hiring manager or the recruiter to be able to look at your work and figure out um, that it's impressive or it has people are getting value out of it. Right. And so if you publish on GitHub, yeah, maybe I could tell, but you're making me work a lot harder. But if you publish it and it has like a 4.5 star review and 10,000 people are using it, it's very, very obvious to me that, hey, hmm. you've built something which has value. And I'm sure you could do the same thing at my company. So I think publishing it makes it much more obvious um, if, if you have that option. Yeah, I think there's quite a bit of a difference between having really an app on the Play Store and just having a project on GitHub. Because if it's just on GitHub, then you can ignore a lot of stuff. But if it's actually on the Play Store, then you probably have, for example, proper tests for your app because you have to make sure that it keeps working and you don't break it with an update. So you really have to focus on stuff that you can ignore if it's just a project on GitHub. So I can see how this makes sense. Is there a specific kind of project that people should build or should it should it have a certain size? I assume that just building a small uh, CRUD app where people just do some database operations, this is probably not enough. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I feel like um, my answer here is uh, maybe it's a little controversial, but I think that it doesn't matter that much. What I care more about is, are you able to create software which people are getting value from? And so um, 
like the complexity of what you've done doesn't actually matter to me that much. It's much more about, hey, you built out maybe this dice rolling app or like some simple application. But the fact that you made it really clean, really polished, and people are actually using it, that is a really good indication to me that you're a good software engineer. You've thought through everything. You've made sure there are no bugs or no obvious issues. Um, and that is to me the mark of a good software engineer. So the actual like algorithmic complexity of what you've built, that doesn't really weigh that much for me into how I assess engineer. Because as a, as a solo developer, it's hard to really like, what are you gonna do? It's hard to really create like some enterprise solution or like some very complicated thing, which is actually useful, right? A lot of it is just gonna be utility apps and those are those actually have a ton of value. Okay, so this is a really good point for people to uh, put a real app into the Play Store. And I think it's also a fun way to learn when you have your own project out there. I also heard you mention in another video that Git and complicated Git commands play a really big role in your job. So should people focus on learning Git intensively? I don't think that needs to necessarily be something that you prepare for in anticipation of getting the job because a lot of that you'll be able to learn when you get there. I think that um, having some knowledge of version control is important in order to succeed at the company because inherently you're going to be working with hundreds of developers and being able to quickly check out their code and test things out and make modifications or cherry pick changes between branches that will really help you as a developer but it's not something that will come up as a as part of the interview process i don't think if you're purely optimizing for landing that job i don't think you should actually focus on version control that's something you should you know learn on the job once you get it okay that's good to know and you also have a project or some kind of learning community that's called Tech Career Growth. Is that right? Can you uh, explain a little bit more what that is? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. So the idea here is that I mean, there are so many people out there who want to be able to get that tech job, or maybe they already work in tech, but they want to get promoted. They want to advance their career faster. And I think a lot of the advice out there is not very good, frankly. I think there's a lot of people know that there's a lot of money if you're able to land a job in tech. And so basically there's a lot of, there's a whole industry of people who want to sell you tools or content or resume templates, which they claim will help you get that big tech job, which will pay you a bunch of money, right? And people are willing to pay that because, hey, it might double my compensation. So I might as well pay $500 in, for the chance to increase my compensation. And so the idea of tech career growth is we're trying to just give a lot of the information my friend Alex and I were trying to give a lot of the information away for free based on our experience. Um, and because we're giving it away for free, um, there's really no, we're not trying to upsell you on anything or trying to push you to do anything. It's just really our experience, what we think will be the most valuable for you to get that first tech job or to you know get promoted and accelerate your career if that's what you want. And that's a LinkedIn group, right? Yeah, so the community lives on a couple of different places. We have a pretty big LinkedIn uh, company or a LinkedIn group, and we also live on Slack. And the primary way that we interact with the community is actually through every couple of weeks, we have a live session where we have like 500 people and we all basically have a presentation. Um, where I'll basically explain a concept and then people can ask questions about it. Okay, I will make sure to put a link to uh, this into the show notes later. On YouTube, this will be the video description. And later when I upload the audio version of this podcast, this will be the show notes. But there people can find a link to this community. 
So I recommend that they check this out. It probably makes sense either way, even if they don't uh, plan to uh, apply to a larger tech company, even then they should check it out. And people are also wondering, what are your personal learning strategies and where do you learn your stuff from? Do you have a specific source or do you always just type it into Google and then use whatever you can find when you try to learn a new topic? Hmm. Yeah, I don't think I have a particular source when I'm trying to learn something. A lot of it is, um, I think, people-driven. So, like, there are particular people who I trust, either within the company, and I say, hey, like, if they've written a note about something or they made a code change, I will go out of my way to look at that code change and learn from, like, what do they do? How do they do it? Or if there are particular people, like, on YouTube, like, okay, I know, Florian, you make great tutorials. So, like, if you make something, I'll actually check it out, and I, I can trust that there's been a lot of research behind it. And similarly, like on Google, I try and find people who, like on Stack Overflow, like reputation matters a lot because it's a very strong indication of, okay, this person has been around the block and they they know what they're talking about. So I don't really have a particular like website or anything in mind. It just, I, I try and find people who I, I think they know what they're talking about and then I can trust what they're doing uh, with a higher degree of confidence. So when you work a, at a company like Facebook, then you get mentored a little bit. You have people that you can ask, right? Yeah, like going to back to like what we talked about, like why do people want to work at big tech? I think that's one really big thing compared to working at a tiny company or on your own. One of the biggest perks of being at a company, um, a big tech company, is that guaranteed there are going to be people who are better than you at some dimension of software engineering, right? And the amazing thing about most of these companies is that it's pretty open. Like you can literally go in and see every code change they've made in the past year or like for the whole time they've been at the company. You can look at, um, you know, what comments are they leaving on other people's code changes? And there's a huge amount of value in being able to look at how really talented people operate. And you can figure out, okay, what is the gap between what I'm doing and what are they doing? Like how are they able to achieve so much more than me? Um, and that's something that I think is unique to you know, like you need to be able to find people like that in order to learn from them. And that's what big tech companies will give you in, in a big way. And when you started, when you had your first days there, did you feel overwhelmed? I think almost everyone feels overwhelmed because especially at these big tech companies, um, everything is custom or most things are going to be unique to that company. Version control, um, you know, the code review process, the way you like the developer environment is going to be actually very different from what you're probably used to as a indie developer. And so I think at least for the first one or two weeks, you're going to feel really overwhelmed with all the different tools and technology, but that's where, you know, having a buddy, like having a, a mentor or a manager who can help guide you through that process um, becomes really valuable. And I think most of these companies will have some pretty structured onboarding process where, you know, they'll help you get familiar with what the tools are and how, how do you use them. And when we are really honest, does everyone have have what it takes to get there? Um, I mean, it's a nice thing to say that everyone can learn this and everyone can land a, a job at a big tech company. But when we take a look at how difficult it actually is to get in there, would you say that that there are people who are just not smart enough to? And and it's it's fine to be honest, in my opinion. It, would you say that there are people who are just not smart enough to get into a company like Facebook or Google? Because what I think is, yes, 
I can imagine that there are certain people who want to learn programming who just don't have what it takes to get there. Doesn't mean they can't pursue a career in programming, but maybe in they, maybe um, Google or Facebook are not the right targets for them. I think that, I mean, the answer is probably yes. There probably do exist people in the world who, you know, they just don't have the work ethic or they're not smart enough potentially to actually make it in. But I think by and large, the answer is that it is possible. Because like, I think one thing that is a big misconception out there is that getting into these big tech companies is not a meritocratic process. It is simply not. So much of it is driven by you went to the right college or you know someone who works there who can refer you, right? It's like the gap of opportunity for like if you, a lot of the people in the community are international, right? Like they are in India or some people are in Europe. Um, and the fact of the matter is that it is actually significantly harder to get into these big tech companies if you're from there compared to if you're in, I'm in, uh, in California, right? I'm in San Francisco. And so it is significantly easier here because I know a ton of people who work at these companies. So I think the short answer is that you're, you're probably right. There might exist some population where they'll, they'll never make it. But for the vast majority of people, I think if they work hard enough and there's some amount of luck involved, if they know the right people or if they are able to get noticed with some app they published, they they will be able, they have the potential to, to succeed at one of these companies. Okay, and do we have any tips on finding such a referral? I mean, if I understand it correctly, people have, it makes sense to move to certain cities because it's easier to network with the right people there. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things here. One is that, um, <clears throat> the more <clears throat> the most like deterministic path, like the most non-luck driven path is um, try and move to a bigger city and work at a medium sized tech company. And what will happen is over time, people always will switch jobs every two, three, four years. And then eventually someone, you know, at that medium sized company or small company will go on to another company where they'll know someone who goes on and goes to a big company, right? Like guaranteed, you're going to have like one degree of separation from someone who works at one of these companies eventually if you you know are are doing good work in a small medium company and so then you can leverage that to get that referral and then once you are able to get on the radar then you can keep applying like i think i failed the first couple times i interviewed at many of these companies but keep trying and you'll eventually make it and the other thing i'll mention here is that one thing i think about a lot is put yourself in a position to get lucky um and this is not something that you have control over because it's, it's luck inherently. But one thing I think about a lot is when you're making an app, rather than just putting it on GitHub, go the extra mile to actually publish it. Or maybe you're writing a blog post about some technical topic. Instead of just writing it for yourself, go out and put go the extra mile to publish it and then tweet about it or put it on your LinkedIn. The more opportunities you have to put yourself out there, I think um, that will lead to people noticing you, people being able to give you feedback about your work. And not only will it make you better, but it can also lead to things like what we're talking about here. Someone can notice your work and say, hey, I think you'd be a really good fit for this team at this company. I'll refer you, right? Um, and that will only happen if you go the extra mile to put yourself out there and publish your work and, and, and try and get lucky. Um, so as much as possible, like don't work on your own in a silo. You have to go out and, and kind of advocate for yourself. And having a blog and writing regular tech blog posts makes sense. This raises your chances of get of getting found. A hundred percent. I think that it'll <clears throat> it'll increase your chance of getting found. But not only that, I think for me at least, when I publish a YouTube video, 
there is some element of, I want to make sure it's good because it's going to be out there in the world and everyone might be able to see it. And so it does lead me to go the extra mile and make sure it's high quality. I want to do a little bit extra research. I'm going to go a little bit deeper in the code and figure out, you know, the, <clears throat> the architecture of what, what I'm trying to present. And I think that really does make me a better developer. So knowing that you're going to publish something, for me, it forces me to go and really dig in and, and become a better software engineer as a result of that pressure. Okay. I think we touched on the most important points when it comes to uh, getting into a, such a job. This was really interesting, really eye-opening. Now I was wondering, at Facebook, you don't have a native Android app, right? You write your app in React Native, which is a cross-platform framework. I, so we actually have mostly written in native code. <clears throat> like the thing about um, Facebook is that Facebook is a huge company, right? We have Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger app. And if you ask me, okay, does this technology exist at Facebook? The answer for me is probably going to be yes. Like there are so many engineers and so many code bases and so many different things coming together that, yeah, there is React Native, there is Kotlin code, there is Java code. There's probably a bunch of other like things that are now deprecated that have lived inside of the Android app. So the answer is, yeah, it does have some React Native, but actually largely it's native. And is Facebook already using Jetpack Compose? Um, I would say by and large, the answer is no, but I'm almost certain that I'm sure there's some team that has experimented in some way. Like, again, like the answer is that if you have tens of thousands of developers, I'm sure there's like some part of the company somewhere, which is experimenting with it. But as a, like, broadly speaking, I think that, you know, Facebook is not going to be the first to pick up a brand new technology because, you know, we need to make sure that things work. Okay, so if someone wants to get into a big tech company right now, they definitely have to learn XML, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that <clears throat> like when you when you talk about getting into the big company, we're talking largely about the interview process, and I feel like when you actually are talking about the interview process, a detail like that will very rarely come up. Like, I don't think I've ever been asked when I've been interviewing, like, "Hey, do you know XML or do you know Jetpack Compose?" A lot of it will be, "Show me what you've built." And if you've built something of, of meaning, of value to people, um, either through your past work experience or a project that you've built on your own, then I have a high degree of confidence that whether it's XML or Jetpack Compose or some other technology like Flutter or React Native, I'm pretty confident that someone like you will be able to pick it up. And so I, I don't think that the people need to necessarily worry about, okay, I need to learn XML in order to get that job. A lot of that, you're going you're gonna to have to relearn a lot of things, I'm telling you. When you get when you get that job so rather than trying to optimize for like how to hit the ground running focus instead on building things that have value and then you're going to be able to learn all that on the job so the really a thing that or the only thing that really matters for these interviews are data structures and algorithms basically yeah i'd say that um once you're at the interview stage a lot of it will be data structures and algorithms and how you communicate so it's not just like your knowledge of dsa it's also very much about um, your collaboration, how you explain it, how you explain it. And also, I think definitely in the interview, it's not just DSA. There's also going to be at least one interview, which talks about, tell me what you've built, like, tell me about your past experience. Why do you want to work at this particular company? And you should be able to eloquently describe, um, you know, have eloquent answers to those. Okay. Makes sense. Um, how much as you're willing to disclose this, you don't have to uh, use your own example, but Okay, actually, we already talked about this. 
um, how much people can earn, but I think we didn't say any specific numbers, did we? We just said you get stock options and stuff like that, but what range are we talking about here? Let's say someone starts at Facebook. How much can he expect to earn at his first year at Facebook? Yeah, there's a website called Levels of FYI, which I think does a pretty good job. It collects a bunch of anonymous data points and you can see what that turns into. I think the short answer is that I think probably uh, for a new grad, it'll probably be $150,000 to $200,000 in that very first year. Um, but it'll there's a lot of caveats there. I think it'll depend on where you are. Like the location is if you're in India or if you're in London or if you're in Menlo Park which in California, the answer will change. Um, and also it, it depends a little bit on your past experience, right? So if you've done consulting or freelancing, maybe you'll actually come in at a higher level and your compensation will go up significantly. But if you're coming out of college and you have no prior work experience, yeah, probably that new grad package is what you can expect. And those are pretty uh, publicly available on a, on a website like levels.fyi. Okay, I will put the link to this site into the, into the description as well, into the show notes. Those were my questions about big tech. We are most we are almost done. Um, what I also wanted to touch on, you teach at Stanford, right? Maybe you can say a few sentences about this, just what you do there, how you got into it, and what it, why you do it, and what it gives you personally. Yeah, I think the reason I do it is just I love teaching, and that was the reason that I started the YouTube channel. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that one way I like to think about how I spend my time is I want to do things which will give me a chance to get lucky. And that's the reason why I started making YouTube videos to begin with. I have been writing on LinkedIn and Twitter and on Medium for a while now. Um, the whole idea is that let me try and figure out ways to have non-linear outcome. So I put in some amount of work, but that work that I do can impact many more people beyond just like the people around me. And I think YouTube and these other things are platforms that allow you to do that. And so connecting it to Stanford, I think what happened was um, there was an Android class at Stanford and the person who taught that left the university. And so I knew there was an opening. And so I, I went to Stanford and so I, I knew some of the faculty there and I basically reached out and said, hey, what is the plan for Android? Like, will there be someone teaching it? And they said, no. Um, and they knew that I had been teaching Android for a while and they actually saw my YouTube work, right? So YouTube was essentially my portfolio of like, Rahul has been teaching Android for a while and it seems like people um, are getting value out of the content that he has. So um, that was basically the interview process. Like they looked at my YouTube videos and I was very easily able to at least do a trial run of teaching. And so now I've been teaching at Stanford for three different quarters. Like I've taught the class three times. Um, and just the ability to go back to campus and interact with students is so much fun. And I feel like um, there's also a, a benefit for me, which is that when you teach something, I mean, you certainly will know this, but when you teach something and explain something, that's really when you get to understand it in much more detail. And so I feel like that's a huge value for me. And I've, it's actually been benefiting me whenever I make a project on my own or if I'm doing it on my day job, I'm able to do things much faster because I know the fundamentals. Yeah, teaching is the best way to learn, I think. In my opinion, it's the single best way to make sure you really understand something 
but it's it's still not easy to teach something so do you actually get paid for that or do you do that for free yeah i don't get paid for it um it is completely like i I think technically if you are working full-time which i am then i think there's a rule at least at stanford where you're not supposed to get paid for it so um i'm just doing it you know for a couple like 10 hours a week just for fun basically yeah it's uh it's another way to build your reputation and your personal brand basically yeah exactly just like teaching on on youtube and how many people do you have to teach at the same time right now the class is around 45 people that's the end role so okay. the interesting thing is that in the past few times i taught it uh the class was fully remote because of covid um and so this time that i'm teaching it right now um, it's actually in person. So it physically will meet at the campus, Stanford campus. And as a result of that, there's an enrollment limit, which is 45, the which is the size of the classroom that we have. Yeah, 45 people live teaching it would be enough to uh, trigger my social anxiety <laughs> so hard that I would be really nervous. But I, I guess you can get used to it. Yeah. And I think the hard part is that um, when you teach, you there's a rule that you have to teach with your mask on because of you know, there's a lot of anxiety around COVID, of course. So hmm. that also makes it a little bit harder because I feel like when you have your mask on, it's a little bit harder to really connect and people may not hear you as well. Um, so I'm dealing with that a little bit. But overall, it's been a really enjoyable, enjoyable process. Yeah, that's funny because having a mask on would actually really help me with my personal social anxiety in such a scenario because when part of your face is masked, then they can't see, for example, if you are if your lips are shaking, which can happen when you're really nervous. I, uh, mm. I just think this would help me, but I can imagine that it makes it more difficult to actually communicate with the people. Yeah. Okay, I think we uh, touched on all the interesting points. This was a really efficient episode and we got a lot of really interesting information out of this. Is there anything else that I didn't ask that you would like to mention here or that we uh, touch on everything important? Mm. I think one thing I'll, I'll mention is that I feel like the YouTube journey for me is, um, I think I started relatively late compared to a lot of YouTubers who they've been doing videos since they were like, you know, age 18, 20, like much earlier on. And I started, you know, in my late 20s. Um, and I feel like one thing that I learned is that, at least for me, when I was going through high school, college and starting a new job, I felt like a lot of my life was automated like i had a very clear path of what i wanted to do and i never really questioned it like the definition of success for me was very clear like get good grades go to a good university get a good job and then do well on that job but then i feel like i finally got to the point in my life where there was no clear definition of a next step and that was really scary for me i feel like i had to then take into my own hands, like, what do I want my career, my life to look like? Uh, because I think once you get to your late 20s, and people are, you know, going, getting an MBA, or going to law school, or they're doing all sorts of things with their career, they're going to a big company, small company, they might do freelancing, it becomes much more difficult to understand, am I doing what I should be doing? And I think that is really what led me to do some introspection, like, what do I really care about? What do I think will give me satisfaction or happiness. And that's, I think, what triggered me to actually start creating content 
which I think most people at these big tech companies, they don't do. But for me, I just felt like this is what I, I'd like to try it out. I think there's an opportunity for me to get lucky here. I can meet interesting people. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy I did. So I think one message I have is whether you're working in tech already and you feel like you've made it, or if you're trying to get into tech, I just feel like there's so much value in being comfortable with putting yourself out there and being vulnerable, like making a YouTube video, teaching something. I've really enjoyed it and I, I don't regret it at all, even though it's a lot of time. Um, that would just be my, my one message to, to people. Yeah, I had my moment of introspection at 26. One month before I turned 27, I actually started learning to code from scratch. So from zero experience, apart from a little bit in in high school. Um, my CV at this time was really messed up. I studied business economics, which I didn't, I did not take anything out of that. Um, I forget everything I learned there because I was not interested in this. I was lazy. I had no ambition. This For me, this changed at around 24. Then I did some stuff. And then at 26, I started learning to code. <clears throat> But you said that you are, your YouTube channel helped you with this. And I also feel that creating this YouTube channel and creating this brand and putting myself out there helped me repair my bad CV in a certain way. Because now I feel like I'm... I already, I already have something. I'm, I'm kind of established in the community just because of my reach and my YouTube channel and the, the large following I have. So I think if you build your personal brand, which in the 21st century you usually do by creating social media content, then you can, uh, yeah, you can repair damage you have done in your life really quickly. If this, uh, this is my way to phrase it, basically. Yeah. If this I, makes sense. I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think the thing is that you have to be willing to try it out. You have to be willing to take that risk. Because I think, um, frankly speaking, if you're at a tech company like Google or Facebook, then financially, it almost certainly isn't worth it. Like the time, like the way it works is that at the end of every performance cycle, you'll get some sort of rating. And that rating will determine your bonus. And so purely from the financial perspective, if you work an extra 10 hours a week, you can probably get one higher rating in your company. And that will translate to thousands or maybe tens of thousands of dollars in additional income. And that's way more than I make right now on YouTube, like way more, right? And so I feel like um, financially it just doesn't make sense. But I feel like you have to, at least for me, Putting aside that part of it, the idea of having a YouTube or having some sort of content creation, um, it's something that you can point to and it will benefit you beyond the company. And you also learn a lot more. So I just feel like for me, it's worth it. And I think that it's something that uh, it's worth considering depending on how you balance out the prioritization between finances, free time, learning, and reaching and helping people. Yeah, but for many people... They end up turning uh, their YouTube channel into a into a full time business by creating courses, basically. So this is also an option. And when you make courses, you can make a lot of money. But this is also not easy work. And also a little bit of a benefit is that when you are a complete beginner and create content like I did, then you can actually make a little bit of ad revenue while you are learning. 
And of course, if you work at Facebook, then this ad revenue doesn't play a role at all. But if you don't have a job yet and you're a complete beginner, then this is actually a nice way to make a little bit of money on the side while you are learning all this stuff. At least I found this nice. Exactly. And I think one other aspect is that, um, you know, it, it is very exponential, similar to like, you know, as you get promoted in a big tech company, when you're working on YouTube, like your growth hasn't been linear at all, right? Like your growth in the past one year has been way more than the growth in the one year prior to that. But there's also additional opportunity there that, you know, things start having a snowball effect with with YouTube or content creation. Yeah, although I have to say that the, the snowball effect can wear off a little bit because I actually think my growth rate for the last year has been stagnant. I get around 3,000 new subscribers per month. But of course, in the beginning, when I had 100 or 1,000, then this was smaller. Then I had this exponential growth. And there are ways to trigger this exponential growth again. I just have to create content that more people are interested in, which is not so easy, but it's possible. Yeah, and those were my questions. This was really interesting. So then my last question is, where can people find out more about you? Or do you have anything that you want to promote that's your chance to put everything out there and everything you mentioned, I will put into the show notes. Yeah, perfect. Um, so YouTube is definitely a place where I publish a lot of content. So I think we already talked about that. I also am pretty active on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, and then the final thing I'll plug is what we talked about earlier, the tech career growth community. Basically, I'm trying to figure out a way that we can create a product or a community which will help people whether you're trying to get into big tech or small tech or get your first freelancing no matter what it is that you want to get into the software engineering industry i want to be able to help you with that so um please do join the community on slack and linkedin and, and would love to connect with anyone okay people definitely check this out again the link will be in the show notes on youtube that's the video description and later when this audio podcast is up then this will be a the show notes which you can find in your <clears throat> podcast player okay then thank you for coming by in the show it was really interesting and i hope we talk again in the future yeah thanks a lot for having me it was super fun thank you for listening to this episode of the coding in flow podcast if you enjoy this show please subscribe either on youtube or wherever you get your podcast from if you're watching this on YouTube, please also leave a like on this video and write a comment below with any suggestions, any opinions about the topics we talked about in this episode. I actually read all of these comments. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcast, please leave a 5-star rating if you think this show deserves it. And also check out our sponsor. This is a great way to support the show. You can find the link in the show notes. My name is Florian Walter and you can find me on most social media platforms, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever, under the handle at CodingInflow. That's just one word, CodingInflow. You're also welcome to join our Discord community, which of course is free. It's a nice place where you can talk with other programmers about programming and non-programming related topics, where you can get help from, discuss code and stuff like that. And you can find this community under codinginflow.com slash discord. Then again, I thank you for listening to this episode. I hope I see you in the next one. Take care.